Be honest, your bracket is busted. I'm Thomas Bradley alongside of Steve Brown, and this is After the Score. Welcome to After the Score, 89.7's weekly look at sports. I'm Steve Brown here with Thomas Bradley. This week we'll look at all the moves the Cleveland Browns are making, and by all accounts they appear to be Brownsing pretty hard right now. We'll also examine some pretty troubling allegations out of Ohio University. The university's TV and radio stations fired 11 sports reporters after allegations of sexual harassment. We'll ask a woman sports reporter just how tough the work environment can be. But first, Michigan State throws a wrench in everyone's bracket and, quite frankly, all of our plans. We had this show said and done a little bit before the game started, and then the Michigan State-Middle Tennessee State game happened. So joining me now on the phone is my co-host, Steve Brown. Steve, welcome to the show. Thomas, this is the strangest show we've ever done by far. (laughs) I'm at home for the night with my two-year-old son, and I'm sitting in the bedroom recording these voice tracks because... Thanks, Michigan State. No, we we thought for sure, talking extensively about Michigan State being a surefire pick to at least win this game was the safest bet of all time. It's a good thing we're not actually gamblers. Yeah, and it's a good thing that Michigan State was not a number one seed like they had complained about not being because, quite frankly, that would have been absurd because they would have been the first one seed to ever lose in the first round. I guess they wouldn't have because the matchup would have been different. But either way, most overrated team ever or biggest choke job ever? Which one? I I watched a lot of the game, Steve. Middle Tennessee State took it to them. They they were not afraid of the 2-15 to matchup. Michigan State blew it in so many ways. They missed free throws down the stretch. Their defense was horrible. It was the biggest choke, choke job I've seen in a while and the biggest upset in NCAA history. But I'm not going to take anything away from Middle Tennessee. They played one of the best complete games of basketball I've seen in the NCAA tournament so far this year. They ran out, and they jumped out to a 15-2 lead. And I laughed at myself. I was like, ha, this could really mess up our show if they go ahead and pull this upset. And they never took their foot off the gas. They were the dominant team in this game. Yeah, um, you and I have been open in the past about our dislike of Michigan State just because they've been they've been Ohio State's big brother in the, you know in the last couple of years, uh, both in football and in basketball. They've been basketball they've dominated. Football they got them this year. Um, this I, I this is this is great, but it's also crazy. I mean this is this is this is what the NCAA tournament is about. With a you know the, a, very rarely does a two seed lose. It's happened before, but very very rarely does it happen. But this is great. Good for good for Middle Tennessee State and, and, and good for the, the entire tournament. Bad for my bracket, bad for your bracket, but good for the tournament. Bad for both of our brackets. We both had Michigan State winning it all. And a question you actually asked me before we're redoing the segment, you asked me, am I comfortable with my Michigan State pick? <laughs> I am not comfortable yep. with that pick anymore. <laughs> no, that's the dumbest pick ever. But um, th- there's no way you see that coming. And if these two teams play – a hundred times, Michigan State probably wins 96 of them, but not today. That's why they play the games. And this is exactly kind of what we were talking about before, is that there's no dominant team in this field. There's no one team that's like, yes, this is going to be the team that wins it despite something crazy happened. We've seen that in the past with Kentucky. We've seen that with Duke. We've seen it with North Carolina. We've seen it with these elite teams. Michigan State was up there in one of those teams where, yeah, I think they could do well, but they've got flaws as a team. Just like every team in this tournament has some kind of flaws. And we're seeing it right here on day two of the tournament in the afternoon 
one of the biggest upsets in NCAA history. This year, it's different. Throw everything out the window. It's not going to be chalk. It's not going to be a 1-2-3-4 sweet 16. All that's over. There's no dominant team. This year is going to be exciting. Yeah, I um everyone's bracket is busted, which I guess is a good thing. You know, it, it, it ruins my bracket. It ruins your bracket. But it ruins a lot of people's brackets. A lot of people were big on Michigan State. They were rolling coming into the tournament. They had beaten up on Ohio State uh, three, to- or t- three times in 17 days. Um, it was, you know, I mean, you just can't. There's no way to predict this. I wonder how, how, how Ohio State feels about this. I wonder, uh, I, you know, this it's so crazy. It's This is it's March Madness. That's what it is. They didn't. They didn't take care of business. Let, let's look at a couple of other games we've enjoyed so far. Nothing. I don't think compares to this upset. One of the biggest upsets in NCAA history. But I. I was a fan of the Purdue Little Rock game that happened yesterday. Uh, Purdue seemed to have that game in the bag with about five minutes to go, and then things started to dismantle. What what other games, Steve, have, have you enjoyed watching besides uh, those two Big Ten games where we've seen some pretty pretty bad collapses? Yeah, the Big Ten is not having their best showing. I did enjoy Butler, Texas Tech. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, the game I'm looking for the most this weekend would be tomorrow, Indiana and Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't imagine being in uh, – in Evansville or in uh, Northwest Kentucky and anywhere in Appalachia, really, it's just gonna that that's gonna be an insane game with the with the fan bases those two te- two teams have. I remember a game they had back in the tournament in 2012 where Kentucky beat Indiana and they put up something like a hundred points. I think it, it it was it was an insane game. Went late into the night. I think it was a Sweet 16 game, maybe a one versus a four, if I'm remembering correctly. But that was that was one of the all-time great games I remember from the NCAA tournament. It's not like it's a final game; it's a Sweet 16 game. But but it was it was a solid game. One team I'm looking at it's in the South bracket that I I think is going to fly under everyone's radar, and they they really beat up on Arizona in the first round. It's Wichita State. They are the most undervalued team in the NCAA tournament by far. Yeah, Wichita State also the best mascot in this tournament. The Shockers, um, not a not a big fan of a, a favorite among Ohio State fans. Obviously, they beat Ohio State in the 2013 tournament, but they're a solid bet right now. They have good guard play, which we all know is key in the NCAA tournament. So I I would not be surprised to see them in the Final Four. To be frank, that they're they're a great team, one of the best defenses in the country. I think they have the number one adjusted ranked defense according to a lot of advanced analytics. Undervalued as an 11 seed, I'd put them somewhere around a three or four. So I think Miami and Villanova are about to learn real quick uh, that Wichita State is uh, going to be a surprising team in this tournament. Lots of teams are playing in this tournament like Wichita State, but a lot more people are actually playing at home using their bracket. And they're not playing for any money, of course. That would be absurd because gambling is illegal. But a lot of people playing, following along their brackets, not for the monetary incentive, but the thrill of the game. That's right. And, yeah, that is somewhat counterintuitive when you think that you're gambling on the game. You, you would think you're doing it to make money. But, no, you, you enjoy the thrill. And that was a, a big part of the conversation that NPR's Steve Inskeep had Friday morning on Morning Edition with their social science correspondent, Shanka Vadantum. 
Yeah, there's actually a deeper puzzle that has bothered economists for a long time, Steve, which is why do people like to gamble at all? From the point of view of card-carrying economists, gambling is profoundly irrational because in most cases, it's a game that you're designed to lose, and yet millions of people do it. I was speaking with Brad Humphreys at West Virginia University, and he told me that although gamblers will tell you they're gambling to make money, that might not actually be the real reason. Here he is. I was trying to understand why it is that, that people would gamble and one of the explanations out there is the idea that it's not a financial motive that they get enjoyment out of it. What sort of enjoyment do you mean? Humphreys, Rodney Paul, and Andrew Weinbach decided to look at the NCAA to answer your question, Steve. They looked at the propensity of bettors to place bets on about 3,000 NCAA games. Now, fewer than 500 of those games are televised, and the researchers find bettors are significantly more likely to bet on games that are televised than on games that are not. Games with bigger television audiences get even more bets. Now, if you were just gambling to make money, why would you focus just on the games that are on television? Now, you can argue that people bet on games that are on television because these are better-known teams, but the researchers apply all kinds of controls to make sure that familiarity or knowledge of the teams is not driving the phenomenon. What they conclude is that people are gambling because when they watch a game on TV, they get more enjoyment from the game knowing that they have a bet on the outcome. Humphreys and other economists believe this is actually a factor in much bigger settings, not just the NCAA. If you look at the stock market, for example, economists have long observed that investors don't just focus primarily on return, They certainly want their stocks to do well, but they also want stocks that make them feel better emotionally. Here's Humphreys again. I want to buy Apple stock not because I think that it's going to be a profitable investment for me, but I want to buy Apple stock because I have an iPhone and I get more satisfaction from using my iPhone knowing that I have a bet down, an investment in Apple stock. I've put my money down on a story, and it's a story in which I participate by using the iPhone or watching a basketball game. That's exactly right, and it's one of numerous areas where we assume that people are just behaving rationally like conventional economic models would predict, whereas really the psychological factors are driving their behavior. This, I think, helps to explain why it is that pro sports leagues like the NFL have gone so all in on sports betting sites, fantasy football betting sites and so forth. The the feeling is that the, the betting encourages viewing, the viewing encourages betting. Humphreys told me exactly the same thing, Steve, which is when you look at it from the point of view of the NCAA, people placing bets on NCAA games only means that the engagement with the games is going to increase. Even though the college leagues are against betting. Precisely. Shankar, thanks very much. Thanks, Steve. He is NPR social science correspondent and also the host of the new podcast that explores the unseen patterns in human behavior in brain. anybody's stepping on the panic button yet, but the crew are off to a disappointing 0-2 start. Yeah, a new season coming off of their loss in the MLS Finals to the Portland Timbers. The Columbus crew need a little jolt of electricity, a little kick in the butt. I don't think it's exactly what the fans were expecting to start off the 2016 season. Pat Murphy joins us now. He covers the crew for the soccer website Massive Report. Pat, as Thomas said, the crew lost in their opener to Portland. They also lost to the Philadelphia Union. Why the slow start? What's holding the crew back at this point? Yeah, they, I mean, the, the first game was against the defending champions on the road. So that was, you know, kind of 
not expected, but wasn't a huge surprise. Uh, the second game was Philadelphia never won in Columbus. It was the home opener. They had lost home opener, and you know as long as most fans can remember. And so that was that was a little bit of a setback. Um, they're crediting it to teams, you know, playing them different. Now they have a target on their back. They were the best team in the Eastern Conference last year, going to the MLS Cup, and you know, one of the top two teams in the league. So. They're getting everybody's best shot, and you know they kind of have to uh, learn to deal with that. What was the atmosphere like at this home opener after the Columbus Crew went to the MLS Finals, didn't come home with a cup, but one of the best seasons they've had since their championship season of '08? What was the atmosphere at the home opener? Yeah, it was fantastic. Um, you know, the, the, I don't know if the game officially was a sellout, but it was a real good crowd. Um, you know, people were into it. Even, you know, when the team missed, gave up a goal right before halftime, which kind of took a little bit of the atmosphere out of the stadium. But, you know, by the time the second half kind of started and got going again, um, fans were into it. People were up. People were cheering. Um, you know, they have the Nordeca down there in, in one corner. But, uh, you know, there's there's other people getting involved with these cheers and, and kind of bringing the atmosphere to the full stadium as well, which is a cool thing to kind of see down there. The crew take on the Chicago Fire Saturday night. What are you looking for? Against the fire, what do the crew need to do there to come out on top? Yeah, it's interesting. They uh, they didn't get their first road win last year until July, and it was against Chicago. So that kind of got them going last year, and I think they're kind of hoping to do the same this year. Obviously, it's different points in the season, but uh, Chicago is a team that will pack it in um, defensively a little bit and try and hit you on the counter. They've got two very fast forwards up top, um, so they're you know they're going to look to kind of. To, to push that counterattack, which the crew can be vulnerable to, um, as we've seen this year and in previous years. One storyline that has nothing to do with being on the field, uh, playing soccer, or, or anything of the sort, is forward Kai Kamara announced that he actually, after he's done with soccer, wants to be an actor and is going to take acting classes at Ohio State. Did this come out of the blue, or have we known this about Kai Kamara for a while? Um kind of somewhere in the middle he you know mentioned at the end of last season that had they won the championship he would have very seriously considered retiring you know he's in his early 30s he just had his first child so you know it's it's not completely unreasonable to, to consider those things going out on top but um he uh he then said this year that you know he wanted to be an actor and all this stuff has kind of come about, and then recently at uh, their media day, mentioned taking, you know, starting to take acting classes at Ohio State, and he's really looked into it and things like that. And talking to people around the team, this is something he's serious about. You know, he's uh, he's given some serious thought to what he wants to do after his playing days, and you know, he doesn't want to take up a desk job or anything along those lines. He wants to continue to do something that, you know, he he can have fun with and you know, entertain, and that's what he likes to do on the field. He's kind of a fun-loving, you know charismatic guy so it's not entirely surprising that you know, acting would be something he's interested in but you know it's not a route you see a lot of soccer players at least thus far go into i thought they were all experts in acting with all the flopping and everything they do i, I, I knew that one was coming i know it was easy pat murphy yep. covers the crew for the website massive report they're uh, off to an 0-2 start on the season but they hope to get on the winning side when they take on the chicago fire on saturday good to hear from you pat yep thanks for having me guys So it is NFL free agency, and the Browns look like they're brownsing pretty hard. Yeah, here to look at some of the moves they made, both the predicted and kind of the puzzling moves, Zach Meisel from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Good to have you back on the program, Zach. 
My pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. So I guess the, the most expected move they made is they cut Johnny Manziel. And could, could you hear kind of a sigh of relief in the entire city when he was no longer on the roster? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I think the whole world knew he was going to be cut uh, once the NFL offseason began. And Dashi Brown, in his statement uh, after Manziel's latest off-the-field issue, and it's so hard to keep track of all of them at this point, he pretty much spelled it out two months ago that this guy was not part of the future plan. So it was definitely expected, and it's just it's a sad ending to just what was such a toxic relationship for two years. It's really, I mean, there's always that couple that, seems to always be fighting and something's always wrong and you wonder why haven't they broken up yet and that's really what Johnny Manziel and the Browns were it's just it, there was always something wrong it was always toxic always unsettling um and now it's over putting football aside and not to speculate too much on his personal life but his personal life has kind of come into the forefront of this issue Johnny Manziel probably needs to get help after this point, maybe with addiction problems or uh, the alley, uh, accusations that came out about domestic abuse. How, where does he turn to now? Um, is there any help the NFL is going to offer him or the Browns or or where, where does he go? Well, it's pretty much all in his hands at this point. Uh, we've heard the cries for help from his father. Uh, his agent cut ties with him and doesn't want anything to do with him now. Uh, it's It's all about you kind of have to have perspective and recognize, I mean, you were cut by a team two years after they drafted you in the first round and you went to rehab and I don't know if that helped or not. And you have all these other allegations and you're always in the public spotlight. And at some point you just have to wake up and it just has to hit you. And I know that's different for everybody and it's not always the easiest thing, but there's no way he doesn't pay attention and he doesn't know what people are saying and what's going on. And I think sometimes you just have to come to that realization yourself. And maybe maybe he needs to hit rock bottom. Maybe rock bottom is that no NFL team will want him. Um, and maybe if he doesn't have football, doesn't have that to fall back upon, maybe then he'll realize that he needs to make some changes. But it's really tough. And at this point, you have to wonder, what would an NFL team see in him to to want to sign him and to add him and take that risk and know that, everything that's going to come with it from a media standpoint and the spotlight and the criticism, and it doesn't seem worth it. So I wonder if, if that ends up happening and Johnny's still looking for work into the summer, maybe then he'll wake up. Yeah, I don't see him on a roster this year at all. If there's one roster move in the Browns' history more puzzling than the Johnny Manziel draft pick, it might be the signing of Dwayne Bowe, the receiver who came to the Browns from Kansas City. He was active in, in just really a handful of games this year. He was paid $9 million. That equaled about $1.8 million per reception. And he's out the door as well. Browns cut him, and that is just I'm completely puzzled by what happened with Dwayne Bowe. I mean, I, he wasn't dominant his last couple years in Kansas City, but I I thought he was better than that. Yeah, the puzzling thing is the amount of guaranteed money they gave him because, boy, if, if you're going to give anyone that much money, you play them. I, I mean, I don't care how poorly they're executing on the field or if they don't know the playbook or if the coach isn't a fan. I mean, it's if you're going to guarantee that much money, that better be someone everyone is on the same page about and they know they're going to be an integral part of the offense. But that was never the case. and He was 
seemed like he was inactive every Sunday. So uh, there were people who were comparing him to Chick-fil-A as things that you can't get on Sundays. And it's, it's not a surprise that the Browns have cut ties with him uh, as they have with several veterans here um, this off season, but it's, it is mind boggling. I mean, how does a guy with the pedigree he has and, and he's, he's had success in the past and this team, which is so devoid of talented receivers or any receiver above five foot seven, it seems. And Dwayne Bowe kind of fit that mold, but for whatever reason, whether Mike Pettin and Ray Farmer weren't on the same page or Bo really was just way past his prime, he didn't pan out here in Cleveland, and, and now he's gone, and now the guy that brought him in is, was gone even before he was gone. The Browns are bad and appear to be getting worse. They're letting most of their veteran free agents go and getting younger. Zach Meisel from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Thanks. My pleasure, guys. Thank you. This week, news broke out of Athens, Ohio, that 11 student male sports reporters have been fired. Thirteen others were disciplined by WOUB, a public media station operated by Ohio University. A report that was first uncovered by The Post, Ohio University's student newspaper, said the reporters were engaging in sexual harassment against female sports reporters. To read a little bit from the report, the male reporters were ranking the female reporters on their looks and... Pardon my language here, but their bang ability. Uh, You can read more about the report and the firings that happened at WOUB at our website, wosu.org slash after the score. But the report brings up a topic that's been becoming more and more relevant in today's sports media market, discrimination against female sports reporters. Joining me on the phone, a graduate of Ohio University and a sports reporter at 97.1 The Fan in Columbus, Ohio, Lori Schmidt. Lori, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Thomas. It's a pleasure. Lori, the allegations made in Athens are troubling and extremely inappropriate, but regrettably, I have to say that given this current landscape of sports journalism, I'm not overly surprised, and that's that's honestly a huge problem. Are you surprised by the allegations that came out of OU? Well, first, I wouldn't use the word troubling. As an alum, to me, this is just heartbreaking. And I will say it does surprise me quite a bit, actually, Thomas, because as someone who went there, I never faced that kind of thing at Ohio University. And I've been very, very fortunate that in my career since, I've very rarely faced anything like that since. Well, that, that's that's very good to hear. And and like I, like I mentioned, you've been with 97.1 The Fan for a while and are a respected journalist for both the Buckeyes and the Blue Jackets in town. But it, it's... You can't say that you've turned a blind eye to this. I've seen it happen across the nation. Uh, the most recent I can think of is the Aaron Andrews case with the, the peephole malfunction. Uh, a man was locked up for messing with Aaron Andrews's hotel room peephole and recording her um, dressing and undressing, and that's just completely inappropriate. And it's kind of – you have to say it's because she was a female sports reporter and put out in the public eye that this kind of thing happened. Well, yes, definitely. And the Aaron Andrews situation brings up something that actually I think is very important when it comes to this topic. One of the reasons that I was surprised this happened at OU is because I don't think, I honestly don't believe that the majority of men or women act like this. I just don't. Now, the problem is that the guys and gals who do act like this have an outsized influence 
on their environment. One harasser means more than the support of 100 people who are supportive. And then there's a third group, because obviously the Aaron Andrews videotape was viewed, what, 17 million times? Right. And there aren't a majority of people who are going to install a peephole camera in someone's hotel room. But the, and there are some who won't watch the videotape, regardless of, of what you put it in front of them. They'll tell you to stop, turn it off. But there were 17 million views of that video. So the majority of people aren't harassers. There are some people who are very supportive, and they deserve a lot of credit for that. But there's that middle ground where we need people, when they see something wrong, to say something about it and stop it. For, for better or for worse, the sports industry, at least the subjects of the sports industry, is a very, very male-dominated industry. And most sports reporters are, are male. What needs to be done to change this? It sh- honestly, if you think about it, every other profession that has to do with writing should be 50-50, male and female. That's how it works. But it isn't. What should be done to change that? Well, I've said this before, Thomas. I think that the problem for sports reporting is that it's very formulaic. When you think about it, most sports stations in the country, they're called the team, the ticket, or the fan. They have an afternoon program called The Big Show, and they have two white middle-aged hosts, uh, one who is a former jock, and then the other who is one of several archetypes. You know, it's either the former writer who's very bitter, the hempecked husband, or the frat boy who never grew up. I mean, they're these stock characters. This formula is used because it works, but there is something notably absent from this formula. And I think we need more bosses, more people in hiring positions who are willing to ditch the formula, use some creativity, and imagine something different. I don't think we have a lot of imaginative people in hiring positions in the sports media. But if they can envision something and use female reporters in a way that is new and refreshing and that contributes to coverage, I think we'll be all the better for it. I I remember when our station, for instance, covered the the Kobe Bryant sexual assault trial in Colorado. I remember men calling up the station and saying that the alleged victim in this case was asking for it, that all women uh, are basically uh, athletes chasers, that they'll go to the hotel lobby and try to ensnare these men. I don't think we would have gotten those same calls if one of the hosts had been a woman. It, 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 you said it's a model that works, and the target demographic for, for most sports stations in the country is that male aged you know, 15 to 30. And it seems like there's such an untapped resources. There are women that are interested in sports. Obviously, I'm not going to say it's 50-50, all men and women love sports, but there are women out there that do love sports. How, how, do, how do radio stations, how do TVs and newspapers, how do they reach out and engage with the female sports fan? Well, first of all, you bring up a, an excellent point about the demographics. Uh, there are men 15 to 30 roundabouts that you said were targeted. We need to stop acting like they are men from 6 to 10. You know, we need to not dumb down our coverage and make it, you know, third-grade humor and fart jokes and, if you'll pardon my expression, um, we need to raise the level of discourse a little bit for everyone's sake, not just for female sports fans. Uh, second, and we need to, it's condescending to men to act that way, too. Uh, and to reach out to women, well, I think one way to do that would be to incorporate more women in the coverage. I mean, I certainly do think that uh, that would make women more, more comfortable, but 
quite honestly, I find that a lot of women who are right now starving for coverage who will take what they can get, and that that's a little heartbreaking to yeah. me. So I, I don't know exactly what we would need to do to make those women feel more at home, but I definitely would like to see that happen because right now they don't have a home when it comes to the sports media. Heartbreaking, the word Laura used, and I'm going to piggyback off of, is what we would describe the situation at WOUB, where 11 student sports reporters have been fired, 13 other disciplined for their involvement with sexual harassment against female sports reporters. Laurie, thanks for joining me. Thanks again, Thomas. I'm really glad that we got to talk about something like this. It is an important issue. Thank you so much. And that will do it for this week's edition of After the Score. You can find an archive of episodes using the WOSU Public Media mobile app, also on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at After the Score. Until next week, I'm Thomas Bradley. And I'm Steve Brown.